Our scripture lesson today comes from Paul's letter to the early church in Rome. And I think what you'll find is as we read these scriptures, that they are ever contemporary. Uh, Paul's struggle is our struggle. Let's share in this good word together. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I am a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh, I'm a slave to the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. I want the people who know me the best to love me the most. Don't you? But if we're not careful, all of us can cheat even our deepest values. For all of us, it's our character that determines how we will be remembered. I want you to think about your funeral for a second. Who will be there? What will they say? People will remember if you cared enough to be there for them. And people care about our character. And so does God. As I get older, I've noticed that public figures in business, in politics, in our church life, and even in families, well, they fail and they fall not because of a lack of skill, They fail and fall because of a lack of character. Lack of character kills careers, shatters families, and ruins friendships. To be fair, it takes a great deal of time and intentionality to build character strong enough to stand against the temptations of today's world. Jesus prepared for 30 years before his short three-year public ministry. That's a preparation ratio of 10 years of preparation for every one year of implementation. That's quite something. The other hard truth is that character has to be maintained daily and our character is always at risk. In the 1800s, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon said it this way, a few minutes folly may ruin years of character. We still see that happen today. Think about this. If you change everything in your life except your character, you still won't be the kind of person you want to be. So the goal is not image management or skill development. The goal is truth. And the truth sets us free. We are to open ourselves up to the incredible love of Jesus so that there is no longer any distinction between who we are publicly and who we are privately. I want you to know it is possible. Character matters more than anything because you bring who you are into everything you do. Carrie Newhoff says, Character, not competency, determines capacity. So if you want greater capacity for the full life God has for you, I hope you will engage with this message as we strive together to overcome temptation that comes to all of us. And don't worry, God knows everything about you and loves you anyway. That's some great news. We are in the second week of our sermon series, Holding On to Hope. And in the first week, we looked at overcoming cynicism when you know too much. You know, when your your heart starts to harden and just... 
You've been burned before and you don't want to be burned again. The wisdom of Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes says it like this. Much learning earns you much trouble. The more you know, the more you hurt. And as a 53-year-old pastor, I've come to know some of that pain myself from time to time. And you have to be intentional about continuing to crank open your heart and your life to have joy and peace and new relationships so that even though you've been hurt before, it doesn't mean that the next person you meet will hurt you as well. There's lots of life still to be had. And last week we talked about how we all hope we'll be in our 80s. And it is not grumpy, mean, isolated, and alone. So cynicism is what we looked at last week. And cynicism grows when, you're, when you start to protect yourself from future hurt, when you stop taking risks. And risk and faith in the Bible, they are very similar. And so throughout this series, I'm going to remind us that our life, your life, it's a gift from God. And what you do with it, who we become in this life, is our gift back to God. And quite frankly, to others, to those around us, to those we love. So our life is a gift from God. Who we become in this life is our gift back to God and to those around us. So the big question, of course, is, well, who are you becoming? And are you becoming the person that looks more like Jesus? Are you becoming the person that's going to live forever? The answer to that is yes. What kind of person is that? And before you get too worried about it, uh, if you hear those voices of darkness sort of uh, dogging you and poking at you and criticizing you, I love this from Charles Spurgeon. He says this, You are no saint, says the devil. Yes, that's what the devil says. Well, if I am not, I am a sinner. And Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So we are in great shape, friends. Yes, well, I mean, of course we're not going to be all saints all the time. But Jesus came to save sinners, right? Not the righteous. He, the, the well don't need a doctor, Jesus says. It's the sick. And so if you're struggling, that's great news because we have a Savior, Jesus, that loves you right where you are and loves you enough not to leave you there. So, there's a big concept that I want to share with us about who we are and, and what parts of us go on forever. And I'm going to take some learning that I took from um, Dallas Willard, Dr. Willard, back in 2009. And, and he says this. He says, your will is the same as your want to. Uh, the Bible talks about it as our heart. Uh, sometimes we talk about it as our spirit. And our spirit is largely at the mercy of the forces playing upon it. And so, yes, you have a will, you have a picker, you get to choose. But, you know, that, that choice is, is often not, you know, really strong. A lot of times it kind of relents. And so you might, let's say that you were sick, you had the flu, and you wanted to go up and, and go take a run, or you wanted to go do something with friends. And so you think about it, your will says, yes, I want to do that. But your body says, you're not doing that. And so you don't do it because your body overcomes your want to. That happens all the time. So friends, here's the deal. Your will, your want to, your heart, what the Bible calls your heart, or your spirit, your picker, is largely at the mercy of the forces playing upon it. So when Paul says, I want to do what is right, but I can't do it. I can't make my body do it. I can't do the very thing that I know I'm supposed to do. I want to help you see why that is. Uh, this graphic by Dallas Willard um, represents you. And so in the very center of your person is your will, your heart, what you want to do, your picker. And, and so I, I want to do this. Uh, I love that person. I like this kind of food. I want to do this. Well, all of that 
choice. We'd like to think that we're really strong in that. But the truth of the matter is what we're thinking about, what we're feeling, what we do with our mind, it really, it influences deeply what we choose. Because you can really only choose from the things within your purview. If your choices are A, B, and C, you can't pick Y. It has to be A, B, or C. So what you think about, what you put in the sphere of your picker determines what you pick. It's also true with your body. You might say, well, I'm going to go run today. I'm going to work out today. And then your body says, no, you have the flu. And so while you might want to, you can't pull that off. You have a social structure that helps you either make good decisions or helps you make poor decisions. And all of these things together is your soul. And, and each of these lines, think of it sort of like jello. They, I mean, sometimes you can, you know, squeeze a grape in there or pull it through or a piece of orange. Uh, I'm talking about old school Methodist potlucks at this point. But anyway, all of this, it's permeable. It can move in and out. And so all of this together is you. You might say, well, you're a good soul. Oh, he's a good soul. Or he's a broken soul. And so a broken soul is that when, when these things are, are not really in place, then these outside this infinite environment, when it comes in on you, it just has its way with you because you're a broken soul and, and it, it determines what you choose. Um, these outside forces on you. And sometimes those are really good forces uh, like God and God's kingdom. And sometimes they're really hard and terrible um, sources that play on us. And so this is who we are. Um, and all these things affect all the others. And so here's the thing we have to know about ourselves. Our soul It either lives for the body, for pleasure, for the good life, or it lives for God. And so it looks like this. The life away from God, a broken soul, is one that simply lives for pleasure, where your body um, and pleasure is at the top, and everything else falls underneath that. So your soul, everything that you are, your thoughts, your feelings, your friends, uh, your work, all of that is simply to try to get you, you know, to the beach in February, to where you're living the good life, you don't have a care in the world, and all of your money, all of your friends, all of your time, all of your thoughts, all of that, all the way you feel, um, and even then your picker, your choices, is how do I please my body? How do I live the good life? How do I get to where I'm feeling no pain, I'm doing what I want, and I don't really have to care about anybody else or the consequences of my actions? That's the way most of the world lives. But that's not how we live. As Christians, our soul, our picker, our mind, our spirit, our relationships are all to follow God, right? Because um, in Romans, it says this, to set the mind on the flesh, on our body, on our own pleasure, on our own natural abilities is death. It leads to death. But to set the mind on the spirit, on the things of God is life and peace. And so the life of God looks this way. Um, Even in the Shema, the first commandment is that God is first. God is number one. Everything else falls under God. Worship the Lord, your God. Have no other gods before me, the scripture says. Worship the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And everything else will fall into place, Jesus says. So with God at the top, our life towards God, then our spirit, our picker says, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to follow God. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. And in that way, then, our mind, our thoughts, our feelings, all of that feeds that choice of, yes, I'm going to follow God. And so we study scripture uh, and we do the things of God and we serve the people of God. We love one another as Jesus commands us. And our soul, all of these things work together to say yes to God. And, and we're training them up. And even at the very bottom, our body now serves the soul. And so you'll notice the difference in the two graphics. 
the life away from God, the soul is serving the body. Everything that we are is serving for our own pleasure, for our own ease of life, for our lack of pain. But in the life towards God, our body serves the soul. It's our body that gets in line with what God wants us to do. God says, do this. And our body says, I don't want to. And we say, we don't care. You're last in line. Get up, get moving. Let's go. And we take, of course, great care of our body because it, you know, it's the only one we have and it is a great gift of God. But we have to determine, we have to choose that our body is going to serve God and not the other way around. Leo Tolstoy puts it this way. He says, there are two gods. There's the God that people generally believe in, a God who has to serve them, sometimes in very refined ways, say by merely giving them peace of mind. This God does not exist. Friends, that God doesn't exist, right? That, that's illusory. It's, it's not even real. Um, that's the people who think God is some sort of genie. Well, that doesn't even exist. Jesus Christ will be our master and our savior or nothing at all. So the God whom people forget is the God whom we all have to serve and exists and is the prime cause of our existence and of all that we perceive. Yep, we think there's two gods, but there's really only one. And that is the God at the top of the list and everything else serves him. And that is a life of peace and joy. So God's will is for your will, for my will, to reach out to God and trust and to trust God with our life. And then we follow, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, the hymn says. So God's grace then, when God is first, along with your effort, it takes our best effort, we can't earn it, but it does take our effort, it reorders all the other components of the self. But you might say, well, well, how am I doing? Is God first in my life or am I first in my life? Well, here are some signs uh, when it comes to temptation that you're losing the battle. The first is this. There's a growing gap between your public life and your private life. Who you say you are and who you actually are. Uh, What this looks like is that you project an image of yourself that is not accurate. I wouldn't want to call us liars, but it's, you know, that's kind of what it is. We're projecting ourselves as maybe taller than we are or thinner than we are. We might say that we work out more than we do. Here's a little question for you. What is your height and weight on your driver's license? Is it accurate? Or is it the same as when you got your first driver's license and you just simply haven't ever updated it because it'd be too much work? These little tiny things either feed into congruence and integration and truth about who you are, or they pull away from it. In Jesus' day, they had a word for this. They call it a hypocrite. And a hypocrite in Jesus' day was an actor who wore a mask to play a character. And so they would have one mask they'd put on and they would play one part and then they would just go grab another mask and then they could play another part. And so it was very much in the culture and so they knew what a hypocrite was. It was someone who pretended to be someone else. You know what Jesus says about hypocrites? It's all the way through the back half of Matthew. He says this, Jesus does, woe to you scribes and Pharisees. These are religious people. He calls them hypocrites, play actors. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside look beautiful, but inside they are full of the bones of the dead and all kinds of filth. So our outside is supposed to match our inside and our inside is supposed to match our outside. 
So you also on the outside look righteous. You look good to others. You look like you do the right thing. But inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You see, being a hypocrite is judging ourselves by our intentions and judging others by their actions. Let me say that again. Being a hypocrite is judging ourselves by our intentions and judging others by their actions. That's our temptation. So we need to be really careful about judging others because as we do that, we judge ourselves. So that's one. Number two is this. You're hiding things. You're clearing your browser history. You're being sure and getting the mail before the credit card bill comes. Maybe you have another credit card that your spouse uh, or, you know, someone else doesn't know about. You begin to hide things because you're ashamed. And, and here's the thing, friends. When you allow shame in your life, when you use that as a weapon in your family system, it leads to all sorts of damaging things. Here's the human condition. Our situation is this, is that all of us, we all mislead or misinform or selectively share when we feel ashamed of what we've done. Right? Nobody's hiding the credit card bill when it's paid in full. No one's clearing their browser history because they've been looking at cute dogs all day. Here's the thing. When we feel shame, it drives us to disconnectedness, isolation, and harm. And so if you're hiding, you have to ask yourself, why? Why? The third way you know you're beginning to be in trouble with temptation is that you commit to things that you never end up doing. You're trying to project an image to other people that you're the kind of person that does these sorts of things, when the reality is you're simply not. You're simply not. You, you don't want to do that thing that, you know, you wish you were the kind of person that liked to help others, but you're just not. You'd like to be the kind of person that shows up for someone else in their time of need, but you don't really care that much. So when we begin to commit to things that we never end up doing, we know that we're in trouble because we're saying outwardly that we're one kind of person when inwardly that's simply not the case. Again, Charles Spurgeon says it like this, we lose our strength the moment we depart from our integrity, right? You lose your strength the moment you depart from your integrity. It pulls away. When we are integrated, when, we, when our walk matches our talk, then there's great power there. People can depend on us and we can depend on ourselves and, and then we can depend on others because as we're there for them, they're there for us and miracles happen. All kinds of beautiful things can happen in and through God into the world that simply did not exist before when our walk matches our talk by the power of God, not even in our own strength. And number four, a way that you know you're in trouble is that when you stop apologizing and start justifying bad behavior. You know, I know folks are in trouble when they simply say, well, that's just how I am. Um, and most of the time you'll kind of hear it. I know, I know it's a problem when somebody says, well, you know, you, you just got to let that go because that's how they are. And when I hear that, you know what I know? They've given up hope. They've lost their hope to change. They feel like it's inevitable. They, they feel like they don't have a way of being different. They don't know how or they don't want to or they're unwilling. And so you just know, friends, that in the Christian walk and the Christian faith and the Christian life, um, using that's just how I am as an excuse is not an excuse. You, you never heard Jesus do that. 
You never heard the disciples do that. You never heard a great person of faith do that and say, well, you know, I, it's just how I am. I'm, because you, you see how there's no hope there. Our hope is in Jesus Christ who can change anything. He can change a cross to a resurrection. He can change hopelessness to hope. And he can change your life if you'll let him. But you've got to invite him in. So what does this sound like? It sounds like this. Oh, oh, in my job, no, lots of people in the field do the same thing. And if I don't, I'll lose. Like, I have to do that. I have to make the unethical decision because that's just how it's done in business. That's just how it is. Everybody lies. Everybody cheats. Everybody does this. Everybody does that. And they've just given up hope for a different kind of life. Or we've given up trusting in God to give us a better life in a different job. If that really is how everybody has to be, then maybe we just need a new job. Maybe we need a different set of friends. Maybe we need a new life in Christ. Karen Newhoff says it like this. When you start justifying your bad behavior and decisions, you begin to believe your condition is inevitable. And friends, our situation is never inevitable. But it is redeemable by the power of Jesus, the cross, the grave, the sky. So on the road to character... The road to character to overcome these temptations that we all face. It comes to all of us. Just know that it's not an easy road. Jesus says it. He's very clear uh, in the book of Matthew. He says that the road is hard. He says it is. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction. Because if you look around you and you say, well, that would mean that I'm the only person doing this. Yeah, it might. Because most people, yeah, they're taking the wide, easy road that leads to destruction. Many take it. That's what Jesus says. Many take it. They do. But the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life. Few find it. That's who we're called to be, the few who find it. So as we do this work, uh, one, take responsibility. Ask Christ to make you able to respond. That's what responsibility is. Ask Christ to make you able to respond to that which is yours. If it's yours, then you got to do it. By the way, here's a hint. Blame it's the opposite of responsibility, right? When we find ourselves blaming, that means we're not responding in, in things that God has given us as ours. The second way on the road to character is to make your talk match your walk. This week, I want you to just, just decide. Refuse to lie. Refuse to lie. And you might be asked a difficult question. You might be asked an uncomfortable question. But you can say, I don't feel comfortable answering that, or I find that invasive, or that's none of your business. All that's okay to say, but don't lie. Just refuse to lie. Make your talk match your walk. And here's the thing. If you're absolutely, absolutely committed to truth-telling, because you're telling the truth, your walk will begin to change because you would never want to have to admit to those kinds of actions that you're ashamed of. And so because you're telling the truth about yourself, your walk actually begins to start to match your talk because you know that you are now a truth teller. The third thing that'll help is put your character first. It's okay to put yourself first in this category when it comes to becoming more like Jesus. So put your character first. It is the only thing about you that lasts forever. Your character, who you really are, your essence, it lives forever with Jesus in the kingdom. And we want to prepare ourselves for the great banquet, the great feast, the great joy that it is to live in peace and harmony with everyone else. Because Jesus' commandment is this, love one another, right? Love one another. Jesus says, just as I've loved you, 
you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you have, say it with me, love for one another. So our action steps this week are these. One, make time. Budget time with friends to intentionally improve your character. Now, this is a pretty special group. Ask somebody that knows you well, will you pray for me about this thing that I want to improve in my life? Can I talk to you about improving this place in my life? Will you be honest with me and reflect with me about both really great things that, you know, why we're friends and things that pull against our friendship? That honest accountability can change your life. It was actually uh, a big part of the magic of the early Methodist movement, these small bands and classes and societies where people were heart to heart, face to face, praying for one another and trying to become more like Jesus. But of course, we don't do it on our own. It's not simply self-help or even just small group work. It's Jesus work. It's miraculous, God-given grace. So invite Jesus to change you from the inside out. Ask Jesus into your life. It's not hopeless. Your, your situation's not inevitable. You can become a better version of who God has known you could be all along. So again, back to Paul, to the early church in Rome. He says, this is the case, friends. He says, I find it to be a law. It is the case then that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. And friends, when you get serious about becoming more like Jesus, that's not easy work. Oftentimes people will be like, hey, what's your deal? I thought you used to be like this. What are you doing? Because they're used to you being one way. And when you get serious about following Jesus, it can be an affront to others. And so seriously, uh, when you want to do good, it can be really hard. It can feel like evil is just coming right at you. Evil is simply live backwards, right? Pulling away from your life. And so as you're trying to get better into the life of God, there will be forces that try to pull against that. Don't let that throw you off. Paul says, For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the laws of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? And the answer, of course, is Jesus. Yes, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is with us. That's the great news. We're Easter people. And friends, never let the devil or anyone ever take away your hope. Hold on to hope, even when it comes to temptation that may have been dogging you your whole life. Because here's the great news. At the very end, at the very end of the story, here's the truth. Again, back to Spurgeon. He says, if you are not saved... It is not because God will not or cannot save you. It is because you refuse to accept his mercy in Christ. Among the lost souls in hell, there is not one that can say, I went to Jesus and he refused me. Friends, if you want to receive Jesus into your life, there is hope for you. There's not one person in hell that Jesus has ever refused. If you ever go to Jesus, if you ever go to him and say, save me, he will save you. If you ever say, help me, Jesus, he will help you. If you ever say, comfort me, Jesus, he will comfort you. Jesus loves every person on the planet, and that includes you. And so, friends, hold on to hope. Jesus is the hope of the world, and he is available to you today. Thanks be to God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We thank you that he loves us so much that he would come to earth, that we would know that, that he would live his life perfectly, that he would live and serve and bless and heal and help all the way to the cross in obedience to you.
and that death, not even death could hold him, that he is raised and he is with us in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we thank you, Lord, that in his life and in his presence now, he has taught us even how to pray by saying, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.